The President of the United States, who had been out playing golf and laughing with friends, now was in an oxygen tent. Learning that what he had believed to be indigestion from too many onions on a hamburger was, in fact, myocardial infarction. After waking up in the middle of the night and, by his account, walking to a vehicle, the President was rushed to the hospital in Denver at Fitzsimmons Army Medical Center. Hooked up to wires and carefully breathing, Eisenhower realized very quickly that he would have to address his health and whether or not he was too old to lead. Eisenhower had been a chain smoker for years, and though he attempted to stop smoking, it was difficult when everyone around him smoked. In the years he spent around his secretary, Kay Summersby, she recalled him smoking whenever he could, even with cigarettes being rationed furiously in England. The Republicans had been confident that Ike was healthy enough to lead the country, so whispers to the contrary were often scoffed at. And though Eisenhower's doctors said the heart attack was moderate, not ultimately life-threatening, if treated, there would be no hiding from the inevitable drip of information back to the press. In the meantime, Mamie did not leave her husband's side, pacing along the corridors and answering mail. There was a tension forming. They couldn't have known that this was just the beginning of health scares for Eisenhower. And the GOP had now to seriously act as if Richard Nixon was the man to lead the party. Because he might be. Eisenhower hated to appear weak and the uncertainty would shake him. Questions were causing uncertainty in the eyes of Eisenhower's colleagues when he suffered a bowel obstruction and later a stroke in the years to come. A power struggle was happening behind the scenes at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. Dwight D. Eisenhower, Episode 7. In politics, half of the illusion of power is maintaining the appearance that there was harmony behind the scenes. That illusion, historian Stephen Ambrose wrote, was fragile in these moments. Nixon had the challenge of looking like he was aggressive and in charge without looking like he was trying too eagerly to gain control. Secretary of State John Dulles was leading the meetings while sending Sherman Adams to sit with Eisenhower. Adams, who ran day-to-day operations at the White House, was a former governor and early supporter of Eisenhower. He had many a staffer scared of him. As the story was parlayed in Adams' obituary, many said of the chief of staff, What if Adams should die and Eisenhower became president of the United States? Adams was running the West Wing at the right hand of the president. No one gave the vice president much consideration. The public needed to see that the West Wing of the White House was business as usual, despite the volatile struggle. The government was carrying on. Eisenhower was never quite calm when it came to the story getting out. He spoke candidly with the White House press secretary, Jim Haggerty. Ike had known Haggerty for years, and they had both been troubled when the administration of Woodrow Wilson had covered up the fact that the president had been incapacitated by a stroke. So Haggerty was open, as was Eisenhower's physician. At a press conference on September 26, Dr. Paul White explained that the president had believed he had had indigestion at first, but the truth was far more dire. 
The president was resting and was looking and feeling much better. White also added in that Eisenhower had also had a good bowel movement, a bit of an overshare for the press corps. There were thankfully no bills to veto, and Eisenhower considered the thought of retirement, but Washington was not done with Ike just yet. Richard Nixon, on the other hand, thought this might be his chance. He had been in the wings waiting for his chance to take center stage. Rumors were flying. If Eisenhower, who seemed ready to live a quiet and peaceful existence, retired, Nixon knew he would be the frontrunner of the GOP. Eisenhower, on the other hand, was talking to those around him. Several names were thrown around as potential GOP successors and Democratic rivals. It was then that Eisenhower asked a dreaded question of Press Secretary Haggerty. What do you think of Nixon's chances? Through a smoke-filled room, heads began to shake. Nixon is a good running mate, but he's not ready to lead the ticket. And just like that, Richard Nixon's entrance as the main character was delayed. He was angry. Those around Ike believed that if a doctor would confirm that Ike was in good health and could carry on, Eisenhower should run. Eisenhower would point out that he hadn't even wanted to go this far into politics in the first place. His advisors urged him to find a way to rid himself of Nixon for his second run. After inviting his vice president for a visit around Christmas time, Eisenhower probed Nixon about what he knew. Did he think they could run successfully together for a second term? But Nixon refused to play the game, even as Ike listed numbers from polls. Instead of playing whatever game was being presented, Nixon demanded an answer. Do you want me to run with you or no? He then added how many Republicans he would lose if he was removed from the ticket. Eisenhower's bluff had been called. He chose to keep Nixon on the ticket. Nixon and Eisenhower played very nicely together in public, but behind the scenes the relationship was tepid. For whatever it was worth, Ike seemed to respect Nixon's work and the fact that he wasn't afraid to ask Eisenhower hard questions, even if it made it awkward. He kept Nixon on the ticket, pushing away reports that they didn't get along. The 1950s marketing of Eisenhower appealed to the nuclear American family, but Eisenhower was faced with a fire that was spreading. The civil rights movement was growing and had been rolling since the end of the Second World War. Though the Supreme Court case of Brown versus the Board of Education would be determined during Eisenhower's presidency, it's often stated that he seemed to remain far too quiet on the issue of race. In January, Eisenhower called for a bipartisan look into civil rights in his State of the Union address, and though it was clear that change was coming, no matter how many held on, Eisenhower moved slowly, and many across history will think his response was too slow. Though Brown versus the Board of Education is a landmark case, Eisenhower's administration seemed to lose steam in civil rights issues. Eisenhower agreed with the decision, at least as a sworn official who is expected to uphold the Constitution does, and then he just remained quiet. The civil rights movements made a lot of those in power very, very uncomfortable. As historian Stephen Ambrose notes, the black community had been told that change would come in moderation, but... The term moderate usually means never. The distrust was palpable as it should have been. Eisenhower stated that he believed in equality, but there was a line he always walked 
that made him realize how suspicious many black voters were of him. Southern states pushed back at Brown. These laws were difficult to enforce when the vast majority of time in the legislation was arguing definitions of equality. And despite being tight-lipped, Eisenhower did begin work to push a civil rights bill through the legislation. The bill would create a civil rights division in the Department of Justice under a new assistant attorney general. This would allow for proceedings against anyone accused of violating the 15th Amendment. This caused a lot of backlash from the Dixiecrats, and everything came to a head in 1957 when Eisenhower signed the Civil Rights Act. Mobs of white people began reacting violently to the news that black students would be allowed to attend Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. A mob of angry students and the National Guard blocked the students from entering the school. If I got anything to do with it, they won't show up. Well, I think it's a breaking point of the school integration. I just don't uh, feel that they have a right to go to school. And there was a moment of hesitancy, the moment that most people in power find themselves realizing that you must step away from the status quo lest you find yourself trapped forever on the wrong side of history. Whatever the motive, Eisenhower quickly realized that the Arkansas governor was not going to resolve the situation. And with that, he signed Executive Order 10630, dispatching federal troops from the 101st Airborne to stop the mob so that the nine students could attend school. The Civil Rights Movement would forever be more aligned with the outspoken Kennedy and Johnson, who in his absence would enforce Kennedy's vision. Eisenhower's personal views are likely too silent to give a satisfactory answer, but for all the politics and privilege, his administration did turn a corner. It's hard to think of progress and moderation in this type of vacuum. Progress was made, but Eisenhower had tiptoed around the controversy as much as he could. As far as I am concerned, I am for moderation, but I am for progress, and this is exactly what I am in this for, he said. But Eisenhower was watching the growth as men and women fought to be given the rights that others clearly took for granted. In the mid-1950s, Dr. Martin Luther King was encouraging the boycotting of the Montgomery bus system as those against integration tried to imply that it was the world of communism. Communists wanted to divide America through equality. That was what they said. And for those who are listening now hoping for a moment of passion that sparks the passion of Eisenhower, I'm sorry to tell you, he continues to remain lukewarm. He supported the notion of equality but preferred a snail's pace. It was a luxury afforded to him by his place and power. That problem was also being outweighed by another looming threat, the USSR. Americans kept a weary eye east as the Soviet Union seemed to grow and grow. The arms race was very real, and a race to occupy the sky was following. There had been a point in which Eisenhower had thought, maybe foolishly, that friendship was possible between the USSR and the USA. That now seemed a long-forgotten fever dream. You might think a former five-star general might be all about spending on the military. However, President Dwight Eisenhower took over in 1953 with an express plan of waging peace. That view often put him at odds with his own party. Many Republican leaders believed the U.S. needed a strong military to defend itself against the communist threat of the Soviet Union. Ike expressed often that he believed prolonged military conflicts and buildup of armed forces took away resources that could be used to feed and house people, and that such spending could be a threat to democracy. He spoke of his administration's role as defending a way of life. 
During the 1956 presidential election, the Democratic Party and second-time nominee Adelaide Stevenson made the mistake of thinking that he could attack Ike on foreign policy. During his health crisis, Secretary of State John Dulles went rogue. Dulles was at odds with the president during the Cold War and wanted the U.S. to take a hard-line approach with the Soviet Union. Ike was more willing to believe the two nations could be at peace. With Eisenhower recovering from surgery in 1956, Dulles withdrew funding for a major dam project in Egypt. Ike had supported this project in part to keep the USSR from helping and getting involved in Egypt. The backlash was immediate. To fund the project, Egyptian President Gamal Nasser would nationalize the Suez Canal, announcing they would begin charging a toll to use it. Britain and France would have helped fund and build that canal, but they were outraged. Two-thirds of Europe's oil flowed through that canal. The two U.S. allies began immediate plans along with Israel to attack Egypt. Ike, back on his feet, took immediate control of the situation, threatening and calling for sanctions against his war partners. Eisenhower addressed the nations. We believe these actions to be taken in error, for we do not accept the use of force as a wise or proper instrument for the settlement of international dispute. The invasion began on October 29, 1956, just days before the presidential election. Eisenhower told advisors he didn't care if he got reelected, he would not allow the invasion of the sovereign nation of Egypt. With the Soviet Union now threatening to enter the conflict, Ike would make a crucial phone call. Eisenhower would call the Prime Minister of Great Britain and tell him to pull out or else. If they refused, Ike promised to flush the British pound. With Britain struggling economically, they began to withdraw and France and Israel joined them. Americans were impressed and Stevenson's plan to attack Ike on foreign policy felt so badly that he lost by a greater margin this time than he had in 1952. Despite efforts to hold military spending, Eisenhower's administration was forced to keep up with the USSR in the arms race as both began stockpiling nuclear weapons through the 1950s. And then, on October 4, 1957, Americans' eyes and ears turned to the sky. Sputnik the world's first artificial satellite was launched into space by the Soviet Union. Americans were glued to news broadcast on radio and television, and ham radio operators turned in to hear that signal from the sky. Citizens were now terrified that the Soviets had the ability to launch a bomb from thousands of miles away. News reports bemoaned the U.S. falling behind. One U.S. newspaper headline read, U.S. must catch up with Reds, or we're dead. The U.S. budget for the Miniman missile jumped up to $140 billion in 1958. The Cold War is starting to get a little warm. It's May of 1960. The Cold War slowly heating to that point that no one was comfortable with. Nerves and paranoia permeating every closed-door conversation in Washington and likely the Kremlin. The U-2 spy plane had been built as a way to keep an eye out, flying a ceiling of 70,000 feet. The hopes were that that plane could fly over any radar-detecting devices. To be caught would mean an act of war. The Paris summit was set to start, a chance for world leaders to come and meet. 
That would be interrupted when Eisenhower received word that a U-2 had disappeared somewhere over the Soviet Union. The United States had been caught red-handed. The plane's pilot, Francis Powers, was alive and in Soviet custody. And now it would be up to Nikita Khrushchev to determine whether or not to retaliate. They had found the wreckage. They saw the cameras. Eisenhower could have played dumb, a move that would perhaps allow for a thorough review on his part. But he chose instead to say that the Soviets' rejection from the open skies policy made it necessary to keep an eye out as a matter of national defense. Basically, it's your fault. You gave us no choice but to spy. The fallout was swift and embarrassing. Khrushchev demanded an apology, which was met with icy silence. The Soviets left the Paris summit. Khrushchev abandoned talks with Eisenhower for the rest of his presidency. It would be two years before the pilot of that U-2 spy plane was returned to the U.S. as part of a prisoner exchange. The 1960 election is one for the history books. It paired Nixon, who had continued to serve Eisenhower loyally after his heart attack, but Eisenhower, who supported Nixon, remained slightly cautious. There was always a complicated political marriage. And the wound was no doubt deep as Nixon began to separate from Eisenhower on issues of militarization and national defense. Coming up against Nixon was a boyishly handsome senator from an affluent family in Massachusetts, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. The two had completely different backgrounds, but Kennedy had a charm that easily wooed a lot of people. He also bridged a canyon in the Democratic Party by bringing Lyndon B. Johnson of Texas to woo the Dixiecrat contingent of voters. This race was going to be close. As Nixon prepared for the debate, Eisenhower had a moment in which he stuck his foot in his mouth very badly. I had always been candid with journalists, but he was caught off guard when Charles Moore of Time magazine pressed him on his impressions of his vice president and his contributions. I just wondered if you can give us an example of a major idea of Nixon's that you've adopted in that role as decider. Eisenhower, likely just gruff and on his way to another meeting, responded, well, if you give me a week, I might think of one. In truth, Eisenhower was just asking the press for some time to think of an answer because he was tired. This is not how that comment was interpreted. It hurt Nixon, though. Eisenhower tried to explain his true motive was that he had just been caught off guard by the question. Despite the awkward moment, Eisenhower continued to campaign for Nixon and Though in most cases, Eisenhower just talked about their administration together. And to Nixon's chagrin, he never really focused on what Nixon would bring into a leadership role. The 1960s presidential election deserves its own series on this podcast, and it will get one eventually. It's a tale of two Americas and how much the media would eventually grow to affect American politics. When the votes were tallied, Kennedy polled only about 100,000 more votes than Nixon. After his years in office and Kennedy's inauguration, Eisenhower retired quietly to a farm outside Gettysburg for some silence. There wouldn't be too much peace for Ike, though. In his parting address, Eisenhower had warned of something he foresaw, the business of arms, the great military-industrial complex, and the dependence of this nation on arms instead of peace. 
I wish I could say there is a lasting peace in sight, Eisenhower said wistfully. In 1963, Eisenhower, like all Americans, was shocked when Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. Eisenhower had spent time talking to him during the transition between their two administrations. They had talked about the dangers of war, Cuba, and he had assured Kennedy that America was strong enough to defend itself. And then came November 22nd. 1963. The sense of shock and dismay that the entire nation must feel at the despicable act that took the life of the nation's president. But now he watched in awe as the young man he had spoken to was laid to rest, Lyndon Johnson taking over the role. Eisenhower filled his time with writing memoirs and answering letters and resting. In 1965, he suffered another heart attack and was told to take it easy. But it was almost as if Eisenhower did not know how to rest. For the last few months of his life, he stayed in a bed at Walter Reed Hospital. That was 1969. He had lived to see Nixon take office, but would die before watching Nixon's fall. Looking out of a window, he held Mamie's hand and spoke to John. I want to go. God, take me. Eisenhower passed away shortly after speaking those words. Ike was more soldier than politician, and sometimes it showed in some of the decisions he made. Perhaps criticism can be made that he remained moderate in the times that he should have been more passionate. That's a narrative that can include a lot of us and a lot of U.S. presidents across the civil rights movements or the nuclear arms race. But Ike had an eerie foresight, knowing that America's military might and power could lend itself to an economic stronghold, and if we were not careful, we could end up overly dependent on war as a means to survive. Those words echo across time to be more relevant than ever, despite Controversy, lapses in judgments, or awkward missteps, most of us will always like Ike. Thank you so much for everybody tuning in to God's Favorites. We survived the hurricane, and we are still going strong. Thanks for checking in, everybody who made sure that we were okay down here in Florida. We're good, we're good, promise. Thanks to so many of you who join our Patreon to pay a small monthly fee, those donations go towards buying books, streaming costs, music licensing, all the things that we need to do to keep up and running. Sources for today's episode include Stephen Ambrose and several of his books, Eisenhower, Soldier and President, Ike Spies, and an early version of his book, Eisenhower, the President. Credit also to James Brooke for his obituary of Sherman Adams, ran in the New York Times, the NPS article on Eisenhower and civil rights. And from Yale University, Erwin Gelman's American History, Changing Fiction to Fact, the Eisenhower Presidency and the Nixon Vice Presidency. We'll be taking a look on our mini-sode in two weeks about those who were affected by Joseph McCarthy. I'll get to have a special guest on this episode, so I'm very excited. And of course, as always, feel free to join the conversation over on TikTok at my handle is Melissa Fairlady. You can also find God's Favorites, a history podcast on Facebook. I'll let you know what I decide to do for the next top big topic. I don't know. So if you have any ideas or suggestions, feel free to shoot them my way. 
And thanks for everyone who checked in after Hurricane Ian. We are doing great down here. Thank you so much. And hey, we'll see you next time, friends. <laughs>